Section 6 of On the Witness Stand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Lisa Dulcy. On the Witness Stand. Essays on Psychology and Crime by Hugo Munsterberg. The Detection of Crime, Part 1. As old as the history of crime is the history of cruelties exercised in the service of justice for the discovery of criminal facts. Man has the power to hide his knowledge and his memories by silence and by lies, and the infliction of physical and mental pain has always seemed the quickest way to untie the tongue and to force a confession of truth. Through thousands of years, in every land on the globe, accomplices have been named Crimes have been acknowledged, secrets have been given up, under threats and tortures which overwhelmed the will to resist. The imagination of the Orient invented more dastardly tortures than that of the Occident. The medieval Inquisition brought the system to perhaps fuller perfection than later centuries. And today, the fortresses of Russia are said to witness tortures which would be impossible in non-Slavic lands. And, although the forms have changed, can there be any doubt that even in the United States, brutality is still a favorite method of undermining the mental resistance of the accused? There are no longer any thumbscrews, but the lower order of the police have still uncounted means to make the prisoner's life uncomfortable, and perhaps intolerable, and to break down his energy. A rat put secretly into a woman's cell may exhaust her nervous system and her inner strength till she is unable to stick to her story. The dazzling light and the cold water hose and the secret blow seem still to serve, even if nine-tenths of the newspaper stories of the third degree are exaggerated. Worst of all are the brutal shocks given with fiendish cruelty to the terrified imagination of the suspect. Decent public opinion stands firmly against such barbarism, and this opposition springs not only from sentimental horror and from aesthetic disgust, stronger, perhaps, than either of these is the instinctive conviction that the method is ineffective in bringing out the real truth. At all times, innocent men have been accused by the tortured ones. Crimes which were never committed have been confessed, Infamous lies have been invented to satisfy the demands of the torturers. Under pain and fear, a man may make any admission which will relieve his suffering. And, still more misleading, his mind may lose the power to discriminate between illusion and real memory. Enlightened juries have begun to understand how the ends of justice are frustrated by such methods. Only recently, an American jury, according to the newspapers, acquitted a suspect who, after a previous denial, confessed with full detail to having murdered a girl whose slain body had been found. The detectives had taken the shabby young man to the undertaking rooms, led him to the side of the coffin, suddenly whipped back the sheet, exposing the white, bruised face, and abruptly demanded, when did you see her? He sank on his knees and put his hands over his face. 
But they dragged him to his feet and ordered him to place his right hand on the forehead of the body. Shuddering, he obeyed, and the next moment again collapsed. The detectives pulled him again to his feet and fired at him question after question, forcing him to stroke the girl's hair and cheeks, and, evidently without control of his mind, he affirmed all that his torturers asked, and in his half-demented state, even added details to his untrue story. The clean conscience of a modern nation rejects every such brutal scheme in the search of truth, and yet is painfully aware that the accredited means for unveiling the facts are too often insufficient. The more complex the machinery of our social life, the easier it seems to cover the traces of crime and to hide the outrage by lies and deception. Under these circumstances, it is surprising and seems unjustifiable that lawyers and laymen alike should not have given any attention, so far, to the methods of measurement of association which experimental psychology has developed in the recent years. Of course, the same holds true of many other methods of the psychological laboratory, methods in the study of memory and attention, feeling and will, perception and judgment, suggestion and emotion. In every one of these fields, a psychological experiment could be made helpful to the purpose of court and law, but it is the study and measurement of associations which have particular value in those realms where barbarisms of the third degree were formerly in use. The chronoscope of the modern psychologist has become and will become more and more for the student of crime what the microscope is for the student of disease. It makes visible that which remains otherwise invisible and shows minute facts which allow a clear diagnosis. The physician needs his magnifier to find out whether there are tubercles in the sputum. The legal psychologist may in the future use his mental microscope to make sure whether there are lies in the mind of the suspect. The study of the association of ideas has attracted the students of the human mind since the day of Aristotle, but only in the last century have we come to inquire systematically into the laws and causes of these mental connections. Of course, Everyone knows that our memory ideas link themselves with our impressions, that a face reminds us of a name or a name of a face, that one word calls another to mind, that even smell or taste may wake in us manifold associations. But out of such commonplaces grew a whole systematic science, and the school of associationists began to explain our entire mental life as essentially the interplay of such associations. There are the outer associations of time and place where one thing reminds us of another together with which we experienced it. There are inner associations where one thing awakens in our minds something else which has similarity to it or to which it is related as a part to the whole, or the whole to a part, and so on. The word dog may call up in my mind perhaps the memory picture of a particular dog, or the name of that dog, or the idea of a house in which I saw it, 
Or it may bring up the superordinated idea, animal, or the subordinated, terrier, or the coordinated, cat, or the part, tail. Or perhaps it may suggest to me the German translation for dog, or a painting with dogs in it. There are no ends of possibilities, but the psychologists were not satisfied with grouping the various cases. Their chief aim was to determine the conditions under which they arise, the influence which the frequency or the recency or the vividness or the combination of special experiences has on the choice or the resulting idea. In the last few decades, then, has arisen the new science, experimental psychology, which, like physics and chemistry, has its own workshops, wherein mental facts are brought under experimental tests in the same way as in the natural sciences. With the application of the experimental methods, the study of association took at once a new turn. In the laboratory, we are not confined to the chance material which daily life offers. We can prepare and control the situation. For instance, I may use a list of 100 substantives and read one after the other to my subject and ask him to give me the first word which enters his mind. I receive thus 100 associations which are independent of any intentional selection, showing just the paths of least resistance in the mind of my man. I may use them, for instance, to make statistics as to their character. If the outer associations prevail, I have a type of mind before me other than in the case of a preponderance of inner associations. If the superordinations prevail, I have an intellect other than if the subordinations were in the majority. Or I may study the influences of preceding impressions. Perhaps I read to my man a story or showed him some pictures before I gave him the 100 words for association. The effect of that recent experience will show itself at once. In this way, the variations are endless. But one aspect dominates in importance. I can measure the time of this connection of ideas. Suppose that both my subject and I have little electrical instruments between the lips which, by the least movement of speaking, make or break an electrical current passing through an electric clockwork whose index moves around the dial ten times in every second. One revolution of the index thus means the tenth part of a second, and, as a whole dial is divided into 100 parts, every division indicates the thousandth part of a second. My index stands quietly till I move my lips to make, for instance, the word dog. In that moment, the electrical current causes the pointer to revolve. My subject, as soon as he hears the word, is to speak out as quickly as possible the first association which comes to mind. He perhaps shouts, cat! And the movement of his lips breaks the current, stops the pointer, and thus allows me to read from the clockwork in thousandths part of a second the time which passed between my speaking the word and his naming the association. Of course, this time includes not only the time for the process of association, but also the time for the hearing of the word, for the understanding, 
for the impulse of speaking, and so on. But all these smaller periods I can easily determine. I may find out how long it takes if my subject does not associate anything, but simply repeats the word I give him. If the mere repetition of the word dog takes him 325 thousandths of a second, while the bringing up of the word cat took 975 thousandths, I conclude that the difference of 650 thousandths was necessary for the processing of associating cat and dog. In this way, during the last 20 years, there has developed an exact and subtle study of mental associations. And through such very careful observation of the time differences between associations, a deep insight has been won into the whole mental mechanism. The slightest changes of our psychical connections can be discovered and traced by these slight variations of time, which are, of course, entirely unnoticeable so long as no exact measurements are introduced. The last few years have finally brought the latest step. The theoretical studies have been made useful to practical life. Like many other branches of experimental psychology, the doctrine of association has become adjusted to the practical problems of education, of medicine, of art, of commerce, and of law. It is a last which chiefly concerns us here, a kind of investigation which began in Germany and has since been developed here and abroad. For instance, a purpose may be to find out whether a suspected person has really participated in a certain crime. He declares that he is innocent, that he was not present when the outrage occurred, and that he is not even familiar with the locality. An innocent man will not object to our proposing a series of 100 associations to demonstrate his innocence. A guilty man, of course, will not object, either, as a declination would indicate a fear of betraying himself. He cannot refuse and yet affirm his innocence. Moreover, he will feel sure that no questions can bring out any facts which he wants to keep hidden in his soul. He will be on the lookout, as long as nothing more is demanded than that he speak the first word which comes to his mind. When another word is spoken to him, there is indeed no legal and no practical reason for declining, as long as innocence is professed. Such an experiment will at once become interesting in three different directions as soon as we mix into our list of 100 words a number, perhaps 30, which stand in more or less close connection to the crime in question, words which refer to the details of the locality or to the persons present at the crime or to the probable motive or to the professed alibi and so on. The first direction of our interest is toward the choice of the associations. Of course, everyone believes that he would be sure to admit only harmless words to his lips, but the conditions of the experiment quickly destroy that feeling of safety. As soon as a dangerous association rushes to the consciousness, it tries to push its way out. It may, indeed, need some skill to discover the psychical influence as a suspected person may have self-control enough not to give away the dangerous idea directly, but the suppressed idea remains in consciousness and taints the next association, or perhaps the next but one, without his knowledge. 
He has perhaps slain a woman in her room and yet protests that he has never been in her house. By the side of her body was a cage with a canary bird. I, therefore, mix into my list of words also bird. His mind is full of the gruesome memory of his heinous deed. The word bird, therefore, at once awakens the association canary bird in his consciousness. Yet he is immediately aware that this would be suspicious, and he succeeds before the dangerous word comes to his lips in substituting the harmless word sparrow. Yet my next word, or perhaps my second or third next, is color, and his prompt association is yellow. The canary bird is still in his mind and shows its betraying influence. The preparation of the list of words to be called thus needs psychological judgment and insight if a man with quick self-control is to be trapped. In most cases, however, there is hardly any need of relying on the next and following words as the primary associations for the critical words unveil themselves for important evidence directly enough. End of section 6